You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And today, your prayers have been answered. Well, maybe not your prayers, but at least some of your questions. (laughs) Hopefully we'll have some of those questions answered in today's second listener episode. And thank you so much for insight questions and all of your feedback. We absolutely do appreciate it. And it's not today's second episode. It's listener episode part two. Numero That we're doing today. Yes. So I said that completely in a strange order, but hey, I do those kind of things. So I kind of chunked these up into sections and, uh, you know, there were a lot of sort of similar or repeat questions about a few specific things. And we talked about doing sort of a label artist Q&A kind of thing before. And so we're going to tackle that in this episode here. There's a lot of questions uh, people have about running a label, about the logistics of it. And uh, then we got asked, you know, some stuff about uh, gear and some stuff about favorites and, and just general sort of noise extra opinions or questions and so we'll go through all that but i think we can start off with the label stuff right heck yeah and one of the things that was uh asked regularly is what's a reasonable amount of artist copies and that seems like a good thing to jump into because when i started out and, and started trying to run a label and send my stuff out i didn't really know the answer to this question either and of course it's going to differ from person to person label to label uh, what the expectations are, what the size of the run is. But I think the general standard has been between 15 and 30% of copies and 50% of digital is what I know a lot of places do for a split somewhere in that realm. Now that can vary on a lot of factors. Uh, if it's a compilation, I'll try to skew heavier on the amount of artist copies because I want to get more people you know, people, more copies of it, or, you know, it's, it sucks when you do a comp and you get one copy, two copies because there's a bunch of people on it. Uh, if you're doing a limited to 20 release, well, maybe the artist wants more than two copies or four copies or whatever. So there's, those things can be negotiated and probably easiest to discuss upfront, but Connelly, what do you think? What do you, what's, what do you feel like is the, the standard? I've always stuck with 15 to 20. I've never heard of 30. That's, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. I've, I've only ever heard 15 to 20 generally. So a generally run of a hundred, you would give the artist 20. That's, I think that's more or less standard. And and I'm sure it varies upon the expense that goes into it. Like if you're doing a hardbound book and making, you know, very little off of it, you can talk about those expectations before it happens. Or if you're having something mass pressed and you have a large quantity, then I'm sure you can afford to give more. I mean, I think either way, I don't, I don't, I think it's just a matter of figuring that out up front, like you said, Gray. And yeah, I've, I'm always fine with, I'm fine with whatever I ever get. Honestly, I don't really ever ask. I personally don't ask. I just, whatever I get is what I get or I'm okay. That's what I got. That's fine. I can confirm generally that having worked 20. with you for numerous yeah. years. Yeah. Whatever <laughs> you give me, I'm like, okay, that's what, cool. That seemed right. Sure. Uh, but, but generally I would say it's, I would say 20% is the average I would say. Yeah. I think that's fairly standard. I know some people give more and it depends Yeah, on the cost. If we're doing some kind of crazy packaging that drives up the cost of the release, if we're doing some extras, if you 
wanted uh you know if we have to hire people to do the art to do the mastering to do the definitely this and that then those increase the costs and it can increase the costs of the final product or in- decrease the amount of copies given out or somewhere in between and that's really it's a tough one because it's really up for the label and artist to figure out and it, you know it doesn't hurt if you are a label that is starting out and you want to give a, a healthy number of artist copies to discuss it with the artists that you're releasing, say like, I, and this is what I do. And if they, you know, beforehand, if they have any issues with it, then you can discuss and negotiate. And same thing as an artist, if you're handing someone your cassette or your you know, album you spent years working on or whatever it is, you can say, I would like to get this many units of this. And a lot of labels too, I know will sell things at, cost or a little above cost to artists if you need more copies that's always a thing to check into if you see the label still got some kicking around but you sold out on tour or whatever it is and so i think that that can be another fair way to kind of work it out is is just kind of figuring factoring all those things yeah i've dealt with artists that don't want any copies and would rather have a fee paid uh basically in lieu of copies because they don't have a way to sell them or get rid of them. That's mm-hmm. a fair thing to work out too if you think you can handle it covered. I know it seems like oh I'm I'm giving money and not copies, which is like in the underground one of those things that's a little unusual. I or at least we feel like it's unusual, but it's totally a way that things can work too is like maybe someone doesn't they're not going to sit at a merch table at their shows. They don't have a a website, they don't have a band camp, they don't want to deal with 40 copies of a tape that they then have to mail out and find a way to sell or whatever. So you can always kind of work that way. And in that case, I usually would base something off of what the wholesale cost of the release is and pay out in some, some equivalent to copies for that. So that's another option if it's easier, but I think most of us doing noise are happy with copies to sell trade, give to your friends. Yeah, I would happily pay somebody if that was, what they wanted. I I think the main key here is just be upfront. If you mm-hmm. have an expectation, ask about it and have a clear conversation. That could just be advice for everyone in general in life. <laughs> yeah. Just communicate. Yeah. Try to be an open, yeah. honest, clear as possible yeah, and, and let people know your expectations out of the interaction. Hey, there you go. Relationships, labels, jobs, <laughs> life. We are here for you. <laughs> and one thing I think to keep in mind as a label is that artists can self-release and put their own stuff on Bandcamp and do this and do that. And so, you know, one of the questions we got here is how to be uh, sustainable as a business model for a label, but also fair. And that's sort of a thing that that we're talking about here is like communicate and understand the expectations of the artists you're working with and understand what your costs and expenses are, because it's not just oh, I paid 200 bucks to have some tapes made. It's, I now have to store these, promote these, mail these out, get them in the hands. I might be sitting on them for years. I've had releases that I've still have releases that I pressed, you know, years ago that I have here. And that's just how it works sometimes too. So you can't count on an immediate turnaround regardless of what your last release did and what your next release might do. And so, uh, you know, figure out what the bare minimum you need to sell is and, figure out what everyone's comfortable with. And that's fair. If everyone is, is in agreement on it, then, then it's a fair deal. I go into every release, assuming that zero people are interested. And that is absolutely true. Once you get that one and then another one, two, three, four, Hey, 
you've already exceeded your own expectations. So, <laughs> but I think that goes down to the to the motivation of having a label or doing a release. Like, you really need to personally get something out of it. It doesn't have to be because you love doing it. It can be because you're compelled to do it. It would be great if it's because you love to do it, but you know, or if there's something that you feel that you need to say, something you feel that you need to convey an idea that you have in your head that you want to share, like all of those things I think are so important in putting anything out, be it a release, a label, you know, it's, it's really, those are that, that's the first having motivation behind thing. it yeah. and a reason to do it other than it, it can't, I'm not even going to say other than, because like maybe you have this phenomenal design that you've been kicking around in your head and you're like, that is going to be amazing. Like, that's fine. If you have a concept that you're thinking about and you want to explore, that's okay. If you really love playing and, and you really want to show that to people, that's fine too, but you need there needs to be a motivation. You can't just, you know, do it to do it and be milk toast about it. Absolutely. And you also can't expect to get make money or <laughs> or other people to love it either. I mean, honestly, I mean, I think that goes for all artists, visual, visual or musical. I think that ties into sort of another question here, which is what is the best way to get my stuff out there besides playing shows? Uh, especially as you know, with, uh, current situation and lack of touring and if you don't like playing shows maybe you're socially awkward maybe you don't want to go out and, and do shows maybe there's not really much of a scene where you're living and you interact with this stuff mostly online and also one of the questions that we've gotten is how can i get my stuff released in a physical format and those kind of tie together for me in the way of the best way to figure out what you want to do to make the release the way you want to make it is to do it yourself. I think we said this in a previous episode with similar questions, but I will drive the point home again here because if someone sends me a cassette that's properly done and, and you know, fully released and looks nice and has art and liner notes and they say, Hey, this is a demo, but this is what I'm kind of thinking of. Or if someone sends me a SoundCloud link or a zip file, I'm a lot more excited about checking out, the cassette that they put time into making and presenting their vision, not just a file, but if there's art, it doesn't have to be a tape. It can be a CD. It can be, it can be files, but there can be art and some writing about the release and those sort of things. And for better or worse, this is now a, you know, there's a ton of competition. Everybody has a band camp. Everybody can have a SoundCloud. Everybody can have a record label. You can get your stuff out anywhere. Uh, you can sign up for services and put your stuff on Spotify, you know, super easy. So you can do it yourself and get it out there. So why is someone going to want to take a chance to do, to work with you or put it out? They have to love the material, love the vision and connect with you in some way. Like I know I only work with people I know now as a label and that has made life a lot easier for me because the expectations are already there. The communication's already there. And so, you know, the sending an email to 20 labels and saying, I love your label. Here's my demo. Well, uh, uh, those 20 labels pr uh, probably all assume that you sent that email to 20 <laughs> other labels. Mm -hmm. And so personalize it. What releases made you think that it would fit? What does your sound go with something like this? What, when did you start uh, collecting their stuff or checking out their stuff? Uh, if have you been a customer, you know, or like those sort of things, you know, or even where you got your, Hey, I got your releases from scream and ride or, Hey, I got your releases at Hanson or, you know, wherever you find this stuff, 
you can you can include that sort of information because it's going to let someone know that you're actually more tapped in because I've had goth rock bands send me their demo that like, well, it might <laughs> sound good. I'm not putting it out. And it's, it's just a little misguided in that way. And but when I get a, a letter or an email from someone that is obviously paid attention or is a fan of the stuff and understands what I'm doing and we click on a level, then that already makes me want to know more and investigate more. Yeah. Context is so key. It is. For releases and art. Yeah. In general. And I think that's why mail art was so successful too, because it's a, you're sending a personal element when you're doing something like that. It It's a, a personal intimate interaction and you feel like you have more of a context for that material. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there's, if your first contact with someone who you want to spend the time and energy to release your music is sending an email, asking them to do that, then that that's not what I feel is the right router. It's not the right route for me and to get to, to me. And I feel like that's true of a lot of other people I know is that that's, there has to be some connection. And so, yeah, playing shows, you know, there's another question here. Uh, how do you build a local community around a label? And the, that, that one is a, a tricky one because it's going to vary everywhere, but playing shows, putting together shows, attending gigs. If you're talking about local scene, take stuff to the record stores, talk to people involved. I mean, those are all the ways that you would do that. There's no shortcut to it. There's no easy way to build a community or build a, uh, label roster identity without communication and without contacting these people and being enthusiastic and, and returning their enthusiasm if they're excited about it. Like those things are very important and it doesn't happen without them. And I think, you know, this question made me think about early Kentucky stuff when hair police was starting or even stuff before hair mm -hmm. police and, how we just forced, we just forced it basically because there was nothing in Lexington in the end of the 90s, or early 2000s that was any sort of quote unquote noise scene, whatever word you want to use. We invented it then there. Yeah, you got banned at so many places. And I don't and I and and I don't remember when it just started actually rolling and feeling that we could actually start doing this and more consistently and people started actually being interested. And it wasn't just the watching the car crash. It was that, but I think it was just, it was just, we never stopped. And Hey, over 20 years later, we we're still just, <laughs> we are forcing the issue. We're forcing our podcast on podcast platforms. No one, <laughs> no one, no one was, no one asked us to do it. We just kept doing it. So I think it's just, pure persistence and and that you know it always went back to me to the to the to get in the van talking about yep. black flag playing to two people in some nowhere town but you just you still do it and then you go back again the next year right. and maybe there's 10 people and then you, you just the persistence mm -hmm. now i don't have that same touring enthusiasm anymore but I, I certainly did but just that that thought of you don't stop don't stop don't stop don't stop I think is ultimately the and it, it can be met with a lot of a lot of heartbreak and a lot of heartache but yeah but it, you gotta try it, you to enjoy stop. the ride you know yeah there there you can at least like 
grab on or, to or, the or wallow in the misery parts. Or yeah, or yeah, or love the misery. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Just really drink it in, let it sink. Well, Mike, you touched on something that's actually another question here. So how do you find venues for shows if you're not really part of doing something? And, you know, I think the best option for people to do that, like you're talking about, you just kind of force it. You go to the the bowling alley has a stage in the bar. You go to the bowling alley and ask them if you can book a show and ask them what they charge. The, you know, the DIY venue, you just talk to someone there. Figure out who runs it, see who's posting the show flyers, whatever it is. If you don't know because you're not going to those shows or whatever, but it helps if you're there and you're going to these venues and then you can say, hey, how would I go about setting up a show here? Uh, But in more dire times, I've seen shows at all sorts of weird places. I've played in laundromats and Chinese restaurants and like it's a thousand basements. A thousand basements. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. I love a basement. Don't really have the luxury of that here in Los Angeles uh, with the basements, but in Michigan, everybody had a basement. And so everybody had a venue. Like you could, you could just Mm -hmm. book a basement show. And I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of the Midwesterners know what I'm talking about here. And so it's again, that same sort of thing of like brute force. You just have to make it happen. It's not going to happen without effort. And sometimes it's a lot of effort and sometimes it doesn't go very well. And you book that show at that bowling alley that has a stage in the weird bar area that there's like four, you know, like regulars hanging out at and they hate it. And only a couple of your friends show up if that, and you don't get to play, you don't get to book a show there again, but maybe they're like, Oh, this wasn't so bad. We'll do it again. Or like, Oh, you paid us the hundred buck fee or the however much to rent the space. So come back next week. And just stick at it and figure it out. Uh, Mike played at the coffee shop where I worked and then was subsequently, of course, banned and told that they're not going to play there again. But then, like the next week, played at the venue across the hall. And that was great. And that was actually a bar. And they actually had a stage. (laughs) And if you're playing, you don't have to be 21, apparently. Uh, So, hey, you know, you never know how that type of thing is going to work out. But, But especially the... The notoriety, the infamy that developed from that first show in this coffee shop, it just everybody just discussing how it was just like the most vile, insane thing they had ever seen, how some people were scared, some people were annoyed, some people were just like frustrated. And uh, it made me just need to see it. And I think a lot of other people felt that way uh, because you just you just want to be there for it, you know? You also might find your future wife. It could happen. It could happen. Get banned. You never know what will come of it. I love the way that guy screams. <laughs> it's okay. This word might be a future here. So these these all link together, of course, because this is all in the label discussion. And so best way to get your tapes out internationally, not via Bandcamp or social media, uh, and how to contact distros or noise focused stores and another question here that i really liked was why doesn't anyone buy my tapes and they don't know they want your tape either they've heard it and they don't want it and you can't make them buy it (laughs) that's usually how that works or they don't know and if you're sitting on a stock of tapes that you made that you can't get rid of i would strongly suggest trading sending them out for review what mag what noise magazines are there do you see people posting about Noise forums. Who do you see posting in Noise Now Playing about new tapes? Send them your tape. Write them and say, hey, I've got a tape I'd like to send you. Doesn't mean that they're going to write about it. They're not obliged to do anything with it and understand that. 
sending someone a tape does not do anything but add a tape to the, the probably already giant stack that they have to deal with. But starting out with trading, and, and when I got started in this, I I don't think I sold the first Black Sand Desert CDR. I know I know I have a list of all the names of who I sent them to, and I think I just made them and sent them to people in trade and artists that I liked. And I think that's a a great way to get your stuff out there is just to get it to people. And again, present it in the way that you want it presented. Present it in a way that you that feels like a release that you would like to get because it's going to feel more complete and inspire them to check it out a lot more than a CDR wrapped in a torn out page of a magazine with the name Sharpie written on it, which I have a few too many of those around here mm-hmm. too. And that's not memorable. You know, uh, it's it, all of this takes time and effort and a little bit of thought. And so put, put that in. And, and I guess the thing is knowing or at least being okay with rejection. I think that's one of the greatest things sort of tying into a, a later question about something a guest talked about. And it was in, in, in Dominic's episode where he talked about being rejected from Ron by Ron mm-hmm. and just that feeling of he, he, it was so dejected, rejected sitting on the bench with his oversized leather <laughs> jacket, but learning from that and it, and it, understanding that it's not the end and that rejection is a part of it. I definitely sent stuff to, to Ron mm-hmm. that I'm sure just went immediately in the trash a hundred percent. And that's just it. When you're younger, it feels like the end of the world, but you realize that that's just part of it. And you realize that, Hey, you know what? Ron might actually know what he's talking about. Yeah, he might not. <laughs> well, your noise doesn't have to be for everybody, and so don't be surprised when it isn't. You know, like what you're doing is this is such a specific, weird style of sounds we listen to, and there's so much variety in it that you know this might be hard to imagine. There's people that don't like Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd is way more popular than you will ever be. So, like, there's, there's people that are just not going to like what you do. You know, like no matter what, it's not going to be for them, but you will find someone that does like it. I'm always surprised when people like anything I do. How many times do we say it's not for everybody? Like, oh, it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. I think it really also ties in, you know, speaking of Ron is, is learning how to take rejection and also learning how to take feedback, like accepting feedback from people you trust and you value and maybe figuring out how to tease out the valuable feedback and then maybe discarding feedback that you don't think is useful from you, especially if it's from somebody you don't know, you don't trust and who doesn't understand what you're trying to do because they will not give you something that is helpful. Or maybe, you know, they tell you something that you can use. I don't know. And be inspired by their rejection. Also, how much of your ego is wrapped up in that C20 you sent out that you only spent 20 minutes making? Like, if you work really hard on something, I understand being invested in it. But keep that in mind, too, that, like, here's some live improv to tape noise sessions. 
how much work did you put into it? Now, how much work do you want someone else to put into it to make it, to manufacture it, to get it out there and to, uh, to throw their support behind it? It might be the best sounding thing ever. Like that's, that's entirely possible, but it also, is it the best thing you've done? Is it the best thing you're going to do? Or is the neck is the best thing a little further down the line, a little more effort in it. I'd like to hope that we're all continuously improving or trying to. A someone in our Tara and mine's life back in our early days told once said that you're not going to do your best stuff for 15 to 20 years, but you just have to keep doing stuff that entire time. And of course, again, being mm-hmm. young, you think, oh, what is he talking about? Yeah. 20 more years later, yeah. he was dead on. And I think it's even longer, to be honest. So, yeah, yeah. He, he said until, <laughs> you know, until you get those 10,000 hours in. It's the, ten, it's the it classic 10,000 10, hours. It doesn't hours matter. Thing, right? He was like, you just have to keep doing just stuff. Keep going. He's like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that, you know, I, this was a pain against structure, that what you're doing right now is garbage. It doesn't matter. <laughs> That, it matters that, that you're, you're doing, doing that. it. Yeah. And you have to do it. And you just have to keep developing and developing your thoughts and developing your skill. But I think, you know, maybe sometimes your thoughts are more developed than your skill. And maybe sometimes your skill is more developed than your thoughts. But they they need to work together to give an interesting product. And we have questions about, you know, packaging and how to manufacture releases. But really... Also thinking about what resources you have, like, do you have access to something that you could use in a release? Do you have access, you know, do you, like I worked in a cheese shop. How many things did we put out in a cheese box just because I had access to spoiled cheeses. And so we would just spray paint the cheese box and put out a release. It's really distinctive looking like, yeah. think I'm, about playing up your assets. Look at the sound probe recordings or something like Dan Greenwood put that stuff together with what he had available and what he could source. When we heard from Rend talking about working at a grocery store and using yeah, the, so relatable. Exactly. So <laughs> it's just that that thing of using your surroundings for the framework. Because ultimately, from my perspective, the framework is equal and possibly more important than what's in the frame sometimes, meaning the sound. A lot of times it's how it's presented to me to get me into the sound. I hey, you want to be it, in that it's, world. it's the door that gets mm-hmm. me into the sound, right. not just the sound itself. Well, since we're talking about aesthetics a bit here, uh Connelly, any thoughts on labels having sort of a defined artwork style they always operate in versus artists doing their own art for things on labels. Case by case for sure. I think that ultimately aesthetics is number one. It is the most important thing. Noise without a noise without aesthetics to me is not noise. I could say one label does uniform packaging. Amazing. And the next label, I don't like the uniform packaging. One label does all artist packaging. One label does all their own. So it is certainly a case-by-case basis, but ultimately there does need to be a world being created by the label and then with the artists they work with, 
they're being let into that world. So if they're going to contribute art, it should be adding and enriching that world or collaborate with the label or you trust the label that they know how to frame this in the way that's going to be right for the release, right for the label and right for the artist. That's a benefit of working with somebody who knows you. Exactly. That too. Right. So it's, it's, it, the, this question, the answer is ultimately a case by case thing because I'm looking around the room right now, looking at different <laughs> labels and you can just see that it doesn't have to be the exact same uniform, but when there's the context that the label has built or is building, you want to fit into that world. Yeah. An evolutionary Gen through yeah. line, I think is a really important thing and something that mm -hmm. I have focused on with, with my own label, I know, and, and my own projects is continue to change it or keep change it as you see fit and change it as you see necessary. And, but keeping, a just keeping the same spirit, keeping the same things there. It doesn't need to look the same. It doesn't need to fit the same format, but the same essence can carry through and mutate over the years. And I think that that's interesting. And we see that with labels. I like it when labels do a series or a period of things that you can see, and then it moves on to some new thing. Like that's exciting to me. I, I really dig that. I like that someone who is as insane about special packaging as Eric Hoffman did ground fault. Right. He, someone who was like <laughs> yeah, right, known totally. for crazy packaging and displayed tons of the craziest noise packaging on his walls went from doing that to doing something that was like very, very strictly uniform series one, two, three, and very similar laid out packages for all of the CDs on ground fault. And I, th something in that gives me joy because I know what a maniac he was. And it's easy to dismiss like sort of uniform packaging sometimes, uh, it's also easy to fall into it. Like I like labels that have an aesthetic when I get a stack of thousands of dead gods tapes in the mail and it's just like the same kind of look, but they're on different paper. I love that. That is a mm -hmm. thing I enjoy. I like that all the Hanson tapes have that border on them and they look a certain way, but I also like it when it differs from that, when there's a, when there's a change to it and that gets me excited too. So it really is case by case basis. And, and the thing is preserving your, vision for what you're trying to communicate and how you choose to communicate it. Ultimately it's, we talked about this with old tower. It's building a world. And if it's when it's the label building the world, artists building the world, and then when you collaborate together to put each other's world together, it's a great thing. So here's another question that I, I thought there's a couple, two things, steps to take to graduate from say doing cassettes to like CD and vinyl and, and kind of moving up in the production chain, which can, I think be daunting for people who tend to work at an underground level and also do artists create specifically for tape or CD or vinyl. And uh, I'll answer the second one first, I guess for me, I know when I'm doing something, if it's going to be 
if someone is offered to press an LP or to do a CD or do this or that, then I know when I'm going in what I'm making, the format I'm shooting for, and I'll kind of keep that in mind while structuring it, while putting it together. But that's not always the case. So I record lots of stuff. In fact, after a, a conversation with Connolly that we had over on the Patreon, I don't know, it's a couple of years ago about always hitting record, which I have been historically <laughs> terrible at. I hit record <laughs> all the time now. And yeah. uh, the Connollys can tell you because I send them tons of uh, weird things now. <laughs> which yeah, is yeah great. I love it. It's yeah. amazing. Try to hit record anytime I'm messing around with things. And that's another thing is, you know, you can record your live takes and and plan where it's going to go or do this or that. Or you can record pieces and structure them together and process them and work on them. And you'll have a, maybe more direction for where it should go or what it should be. And I know when I'm soliciting artists that I work with for releases on the label, I will say let's do a CD. Let's try, you know, let's shoot for this and let's, let's kind of, here's the parameters. And I also know that people will come and say, Oh, here's this thing that I've made. I want it to be a record or oh, this uh, sort of a thing. This should be a tape, but then we can do a CD of something else later. You know, there's always these considerations, but I think it's definitely something that's considered by the uh, artists when they're, when they're working on material, maybe not. No, I think it was, John Weiss, who told me this, and I mentioned this again in another, uh, I think a trash word with him or conversation with him that I was uh, struggling creatively and he gave me a piece of advice, which I always thought was really good. It's which was don't judge the work before it's finished. And so don't have grandiose plans for the thing you're working on. It can lead to creative blocks. It can lead to being dissatisfied that it's not the exact thing you envisioned in your head and let it, let it, evolve naturally and don't don't spend too much time worrying about worrying about it we've all gotten records that say oh man the frequency range on this couldn't be pressed to vinyl <laughs> you know or like oh this this was uh too extreme for cassette or whatever kind of things and like that happens too you deal with it the the end result the format is what it is and if you want it to be perfect and sound like it's supposed to sound then i guess there's always compact disc yeah for us Recently, it's been more the title sometimes is the first thing mm -hmm. rather than the format. And that's been something that I don't think we've necessarily always operated under those parameters. But recently we have. We have a title and then we make the, the yeah, recording we, I mean, under that. So it's less of a format but more of a again we're talking about the framework we're talking about the aesthetic so it's maybe we have a piece of art or a title and that's the impetus for the recording the generally i just assume that no one's doing vinyl anymore so i just don't even plan on it yeah and if it's it, so challenging if, if someone's doing it then I it's know. a bonus and i'm mm -hmm. just like oh great cool but ultimately i would say that more than anything, it's time as far as formats go. So if we knew we were doing a seven inch or an LP or a CD, mm -hmm. it would be, that would be the thought as less the frequency and that sort of thing only because we're Neanderthals with that. I'm sure other people have much more precise thoughts about say, I want to press this on vinyl. Well, I don't want to use these types of sounds. We're brain dead so we don't think that way someone else's problem yeah, yeah. so more it's more time-wise 
where someone's, oh, you're going to do a seven inch. So then that's the parameter. We, we Then we'll work in the time. Yeah. And I, I think it's good to be self-aware about how you work. Like Mike and I do really well together because I tend to overthink, overwork something to the point that it would not happen. And he is really good at being immediate and making faster decisions. So when we are together, I think that we can be more successful because we balance each other well in that in that realm. And also Gray working with you too. I mean, I think we all just approach everything so differently um, uh, and, and the way that you think about the sound. So I think that's why, you know, we can work together. And and I think it's important for people to be aware of of where they fall and maybe having people to help them be motivated uh, where they need. Working with other people, it's, admitting your strengths and admitting your yeah. weaknesses. Didn't and realize how important that was until who, later. If someone's strong at this thing, someone's strong at mastering, well, I want to I want to work with them. You know, I want to work with Labkey or I want to work with whoever. Someone's good at editing. Oh, I want to work with that person. Someone's good at distilling down what I've given them mm -hmm. two hours of stuff. They can make it work in a C30, whereas it's overwhelming. These sort of things, I think, just knowing yeah. you're admitting to your strengths and weaknesses and then working with people who fill in those yeah, like early on, would we have ever known how much of a difference mastering makes? Like once we figured I that out, it's joking. like, oh I think, my God. I don't remember <laughs> if it's in the last listener episode or maybe the <laughs> trash where I did with you, Gray, but that entire idea of mastering just like, oh. never, it just back in the early 2000s, it just didn't occur to me. I didn't know what it meant. on the four track. What are you talking yeah, you about? Just, you just turn it up all the way. <laughs> That's how you get it louder. I don't know. <laughs> More. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, but it, it you learn so much from other people and, you know, really having the advantage of, of knowing people that have similar interests or doing similar things is, is so good because it's, it's great to learn from others. Absolutely. And so, also a good thing to learn from others is where did you get that tape printed? Where did you get that CD pressed? I mean, truly, because that type of thing ebbs and flows, right? I mean, it's it's not like you have the same guy doing your tapes for twenty years. Like, there's always uh, I do. <laughs> yeah, actually, I absolutely Seems do. Gray. <laughs> <laughs> but but truly, like you know, that's the other advantage of of having people because you know, some plants go under, some plants are coming out. They're from unexpected places. You never know until you ask. And if you're looking for a way to get something pressed, I would say ask people who get things pressed. There are labels that aren't shy about telling you exactly where their records were pressed uh, or where they got their CDs made. If you look, I have found CD pressing plants by looking at the matrix on the underside of a CD before to figure out where someone was pressing a run of 100 copy CDs and printed digipacks. Mm -hmm. Like who did that? Yeah. How, what, where are they getting these that they can sell these for this cost and they're only making a hundred mm -hmm. copies. Like, and then I always remember the laundry room squelchers, it may even still exist on a site rat had laid out how to tour. Yes. That was awesome. With, here's what it's going to cost. Here's how much gas will cost. Mm -hmm. If you're this size car, I mean, it was so specific yes. about here's how to do it. If you want to do it, here's the, here's the keys. It's, it's, it's on, it's up to you. Well, which I thought was great. 
you know, learning these things and then sharing the knowledge is really important. So like, yeah, telling people where you press CDs, if you recommend them, if you don't, you can tell people I don't recommend this plant, uh, which I know I've done in the not so recent past. But I think if you share the information and if you don't know where to press a record, then look at your favorite records and ask, ask the people that got them. And again, it's that communication. You, you might ask five people and none of them get back to you. And then you ask another five and maybe one of those people tells you where, or you get five different answers and you still need to figure out yeah. what's right. going to be best for you. Right. And having friends that help with that process can be a great thing. I mean, I, I started using a pressing plant years ago because Dillaway showed me like how to press there and, and the way, you know, and that's, that's a that's an important thing, like having that knowledge handed down and then you have some expectation and you know someone that's dealt with it. That's always really good. If you don't know anyone that's pressing vinyl and you're trying to press vinyl, I know people that have just Googled CD pressing or, or record pressing mm -hmm. and sent it off to the, the place that had the best price. And, you know, you you get results that way and then you you're going to go. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to mess things up. Even now, having pressed, I, I don't even know how many CDs I've pressed in the past couple of years. I make mistakes, mistakes in files, mistakes in little things dealing with things that that happens and so that's a learning experience sometimes it can be an expensive learning experience if you're committed to correcting it and having the quality be right but the, those are worthwhile experiences to have trust me you lose some money pressing a release and messing something up you're not going to do that again next time you're going to double check and you're going to triple check and you're going to have someone proofread it or this or that until the next time you screw up <laughs> well, yes. but hopefully in a different and then way you do it again and you do it again and you do it again because yeah. I'm just kidding. It's and, but and, I'm I'm so I'm sort of not kidding, but and as far as <laughs> I'm sure I've screwed up so many releases. Oh my god! <laughs> I'll never screw that up again, and <laughs> I screwed it up again. <laughs> I learned my lesson this time. I, no. I know I learned my lesson. <laughs> no. I am never having that many drinks again. <laughs> I for sure I'm never having that many drinks again, uh, except yes. Thursday. Uh, is it best to release digitally first with limited tracks and make cassettes on demand to keep costs down? So one of the questions and cassettes on demand can be a tricky thing. And maybe it works if you are making a small amount of something and there's not a big rush on your stuff, but it can also be very dangerous because you can get behind. And, you know, this is when I was uh, talking to people about label advice, there is one of the things that came up with a couple different people. And, and I can speak from personal experience. This is very important. If you are trying to run a label and you are trying to get your stuff out there and you are trying to get tapes in people's hands, Shipping, promptness, get your stuff out in the mail, set an expectation. This will get there. This will take two weeks. And if it doesn't follow up and if it's messed up, fix it. Like if you're putting out a new CD or three new CDs and you generally sell uh, 30 copies of each CD as a batch to people or you're making a batch deal, bundle those up, put them in a damn mailer before they even go out. So when you get the orders, you're ready. I know. Uh, when our friend Kyle released that Jonathan Briley box set, he had packages already made up before he announced the box for sale so that when you ordered it, it shipped that day. Like it's, there was no taking time, no busy schedule to get in the way. I mean, certainly we are all busy, but stay on top of your mail order, stay on top of your communication, let people know what's going on. They've given you money because they want something that you're involved in, that you made, that you produced and and get that out there but in regards to this is it best to release digitally first personally and i'm an old curmudgeon no 
I don't have much interest in a digital only release. Um, I do buy lots of Bandcamp stuff files. Like I'm hundred percent okay with it, but for presenting something of my own, like the majority of what I do with say the hive mind Bandcamp is, is putting up out of print stuff. I think it's great for that. I'm not going to make more of these, or this is something that's, that was a, done a lathe cut, whatever it is. That's a great place to put that stuff. But for putting new material, if you're trying to gauge, if you don't have anyone that's going to make a set for you, if you don't want to go to the the extra mile of making a physical release, then it's totally fine. And if you have 10 people say, man, I really love this. I wish I could buy a physical tape, then make some tapes. That's like a great way to do it. So that can 100% work out. But for me at this point, I don't work that way. I think it's best for people to hear it in the format that you intend it to be released on, aside from instances of uh you know promotional trying to get it out there soliciting it whatever you're doing trying to get re- reviews for release date those sorts of things but if you presented properly with the art and inserts and all those things and those are all things that are very important to me and when we talk about uh favorites stuff a little later that's going to be one of those things that I definitely uh will will weigh in on but I think uh you can make stuff on demand. We, we've talked about this with, you know, like in referencing uh, slaughter productions and our triple threat slaughter feature from uh, October, you know, Marco was making those tapes at one at a time. You would place an order and they would dub off the tapes. Right. So that's, that's how that worked almost certainly. And it's a little trickier this day because you're not sending cash in an envelope to Italy and waiting for a package back, right? You're, immediately transmitting payment to someone and they have it the next second and then they're waiting for a package back and they have Amazon and eBay shipping policies and all these things to compare it to and Tronics who is always sending stuff out too fast but I think those it can work if you can stay on top of it but don't think you can stay on top of it know your tendencies and know how organized you are and make it easy on yourself and just make 10 copies at once and then put up 10 copies and don't say that there's 50 copies <laughs> until there's 50 copies. Any thoughts Absolutely. on that Connelly's? I, I like that. No, I think that's, that's totally accurate. And I think ultimately don't, if, if keeping costs down is the concern, I would say cancel Netflix. I think that if it's worth it to you, it's worth it. That's ultimately hundred percent. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's the way to look at it. Another question also tying to costs and, uh, not in a way that you can sort of save money, but, uh, how to handle rising shipping costs as a label. This is easy. I have the answer to this shipping costs, what it costs and deal with it. <laughs> just raise the price to what it costs. Cause it keeps raising and that's, and that's just it. And I, people's, understand that it's yeah, yeah it's, i mean we've discussed they're, they're, this the cost many of times. shipping is going up that's that's yeah it. It, well we discussed many times how people expect to pay you know five dollars ten dollars for a seven inch when they cost the same thing as to press a full size record like you know at some point you just have to confront the reality like the price has gone up you have to charge more it's just it's just what it costs yeah i will say that for those listeners who are uh resourceful there are lots of places where you can get uh free cardboard they will even bring free cardboard to your house and you can use that to package things in and that can certainly help. But I, I always, you know, I buy mailers in bulk 
I got a label printer and labels, so it's easy to do shipping. And those things cost money, but they save time. You know, if you're fashioning every package you make out of a recycled Amazon mailer, that takes a lot more time than than throwing something in a bubble envelope with some cardboard. At least I've found. And if you got to handwrite every address and your return address and stuff, that takes a lot more time than printing a shipping envelope with, you know, something like pirate ship or whatever it is. And that's the other thing. The the best way to handle the rising rates on shipping costs, here's two tips. Use something like pirate ship. They offer the best discounts you can get on uh, like domestic shipping and multiple options and international. It'll tell you what you save versus going into the post office. And it also can save you time. And if you need to, you know, collaborate with other people in your area, other labels. If you're sending packages overseas or sending packages to someone and meet up and send stuff similarly like that can. Oh, yeah, that can absolutely work. Uh, it's something that I know is done for a lot of us that are in communication. Uh, I will mail stuff for friends to help get it to say a distributor overseas uh, in, in my same package. And that cuts cost down for them, so at least the releases can be cheaper on the back end over there because they're not paying so much in shipping. So um, there's really no way around it. Shipping costs continue to go up, and that's the world we live in. They're not gonna they're not gonna get cheaper. It's not gonna happen. So does it suck to that it costs twenty some dollars to send a record overseas? Absolutely. Is there a cheaper way? Not not really. Uh, that kind of wraps up the the label and artist questions or related questions for this episode. So now we got a bunch of other stuff here to talk about. Heck yeah! Any favorite recent noise adjacent releases? So this is one we were discussing a bunch because the I wasn't exactly sure if they were asking about the what we call the tendrils and branches mm-hmm. so for example does that mean old tower mortis gas those are all in our favorites of last year mm-hmm. yezu from a year before the terminus album those are some of our favorites that are certainly in the orbit mm-hmm. people who have worked with noise labels on noise labels done noise themselves so I was thinking more in the ambient side of things. Yeah, like Chuck Johnson. The Chuck Johnson on VDSQ. Six Organs of Admittance. Yeah, yeah Terry, you brought up Six Organs. I thought that was a good one. We saw a really great show. I would, it feels like, oh, we saw a great show Ugh. a couple months ago. And it was probably like three years ago at this point. 500 I don't know. Yeah, yeah, years yeah. ago. But it was a really great show. So that was really great. I mean, we've still never gotten over the last current 93 record which at this point is oh my god like four years old yeah, we heard it on a plane so that means it's five thousand years ago yeah <laughs> true. there's a new so one if, on the way right so if, yeah. if that's what you mean by noise adjacent in the more ambient world or a, a little more gu- abstract than traditional sounds guitar sure. use of guitar like current 93 or six organs then i would say those would be some of the ones we've been listening to a lot. Yeah, I find and Chuck Johnson just absolutely inspiring. If you see him live, it just blew me away. All right. What about you, Gray? Uh, nothing I haven't listed already, you know, like Wallachian and Cobweb, stuff like that. Like, just, well, that's what I'm saying. So, mm-hmm. it's, so it's stuff that like yeah. everything we listed mostly was on our yeah. end of the year list. So 
I wasn't sure if that's what noise adjacent meant or yeah, something I mean, else. But we at this point, we kind talk of just about all the, this stuff. We have these people on. Yeah, I got a couple of Dungeon Synth tapes, I think, that I didn't mention. So that has been kind of my zone just because of uh, doing those episodes and getting more just getting more into listening to that. So uh, we have some future guests that are certainly on the branches and tendrils coming up absolutely so i think that really we listen to so much noise ambient synth stuff that it's all wrapped up for us yeah uh, on the on the more ambient and dungeon synth tip uh keys to oneria and endless fog would be the two things that i kind of haven't talked about in a recent listening but that i have enjoyed oh and dungeon tower you know, you get you get exactly what's going on with the name, I guess. So there there it is. Uh, I feel like we had this question before and we answered it, but favorite New Zealand noise artists. And and for me, I, it's it's omit. But I'll also admit to not being that well versed. Right. Like Birchville Cat Motel and omit are the, the two big ones, I guess. Surface of the Earth is really cool. They had a record on Fusetron. And I always liked that from the, I want to say that was probably end of the 90s. Would have gotten it in a trade with Fusetron. And I remember really liking that. And yes, Omit for sure. Is Witsist New Zealand? Yes. Great Banana Fish article mm-hmm. and homemade tapes. I mean, Dead Sea, you know, Bruce. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, I mean. And My- Michael Morley. There was actually a great Michael Morley record. Speaking of adjacent, it's more in the ambient realm of things. On Thin Wrist. A little bit back. But Dead Sea, Bruce Gilbert, Handful of Dust. There's definitely some good stuff. I certainly think an Omit episode is due for sure. Looming. Yeah, absolutely. I got to see Gate uh, a few years ago when Ramla came through so on, oh, the, cool. on the bill with Gate, and that was that was actually really good. Yeah. Wow, very cool. All right, uh, this one might be aimed at me. I don't know if you guys have a favorite, but favorite Lust Vessel release. To be perfectly honest, we're not uh, familiar. I've just seen the only grim, from you, and just Grim re-releases. Love Grim. Love but Grim. Those those Grim tapes are great. But it's really your love of Lust yes, Vessel exactly. and, uh, and yeah. you playing some stuff when we're over mm-hmm. there, you showing us the tapes. We are admittedly not incredibly familiar with Lust Vessel. So this is certainly for you. There's a lot of good tapes on Lust Vessel. My favorites, like, had to pick. Obviously, Gay's Campaign, Gestalt Brews, is, like, just a fantastic, fantastic set, the first release. Uh I feel like I'm always talking about Polar Mold Mentis. Uh, Meat Chamber, after all, is probably my favorite. Well, I, th- I think it's... There's, there's only two on Lust Vessel and one of them on a sub-label, but Meat Chamber, after all, is really uh, just a fantastic cassette. And I really like the Karasio Zuko Mischievous Sijin 1923 cassette. Uh, those are all really weird, but some of the stuff on the side labels, like the Parisian cassette is really good. Also from the later stuff, I really like the Arvin Milio Anthropocene cassette and the Joel Danielson cassette they did. 
Uh, but there's, I just like that label. And this is what I was saying about aesthetics. This label had a very uniform set of aesthetics and then did side labels with slightly different aesthetics that were also still equally refined. And I love that these, these little details and the, the kind of approach and technique to putting this stuff together, but the art is different. You know, the art definitely feels different, but they all look so great on a shelf and fit together nicely. And sometimes they'd be more extravagant with a fold out and a poster and an insert. And sometimes they'd be a little more stripped down. Uh, sometimes there'd be a booklet, but I just like, you know, I think a lot of this was also coming from the same person or group of people uh, early on at least. And so that consistency is uh, really easy to keep, but the, the things I listen to the most are probably like that polar momentous tape and uh, the uh, gaze campaign tape. Favorite macro release. Well, we were just listening to relentless agony. It was really good. It was an incredible one on art concrete. So I'm going to say that right now because with <laughs> right. macro, it's definitely <laughs> so... you revisit, you have the idea in your mind, what it is you listen to it. You then listen you to another one, one, you like, hear another oh, one, like, oh, that one, that yeah. one. So I'm just going to throw out, it, it is something that changes. So I'm going to throw out a changing one and then I'm going to throw out the one that I, would say is the most important to me, us, but Relentless Agony. I'm just, let's throw that out mm. there. It's a great one. I don't know if that one's been reissued, probably on something, but we have the tape and split with Government Alpha, Obliteration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just something that I'll never get sick of looking at. I'll never get sick of thinking about. A great, friend says if it's worth thinking about it's worth listening to i think that's an incredible quote and that's certainly obliteration all right but really next week it could be a different one yeah what about you uh i really like grind i think that one's really solid um i one that I've listened to probably it might be my most listened to because it was the one I had sort of for the longest time alongside intensive care, the macro live greatest hits on self abuse. Uh, I don't know why I just played that one so much. And the one that was sort of like the, the newer one that came out that I, that I really dug was membranes and black holes. I don't know if you remember that one came in at like seven oh, inch packaging. Yeah. And the seven inch. I don't, I don't know last time I listened to it. It's been, it's been it a is. while. I, I have very fond memories of it. And I, I know I pulled it out a few years ago, but I haven't, it's in the seven inches, sadly relegated to seven inch Sunday, <laughs> but uh, I'll have to, I'll have to pull that one back out. Seven inch in CD packaging. Some of the, some of the greatest CDs Best have Sunday come in seven week. inch packaging. Uh, favorite hospital release. I mean, this is a wild one. Ugh. As there's, I th we're in the 800s now, I think. So picking a favorite is wild. And I think we've said before, you know, all of us and Dominic go so far back. The first no fun was the four of us in a hotel room. That's true. So it's, we go so far back mm -hmm. that it's to pinpoint one would be 
wild. In a hotel room that was above a salsa dancing floor in right. Queens. Right. So all it, we went down and there's all these people decked out in complete like ruffle body glitter salsa gear. And then just trying to go to sleep while we hear them uh, dancing beneath us. Uh, it was great. But we jotted down some that I think help represent eras of hospital. I think the skin crime self-titled LP mm. would have to be up there. Masterpiece. Dude, skin crime box. Uh, yeah, the skin crime box. I, mean, I mean, the skin crime box, skin maybe crime that's, box that just, might, uh, yeah, right. Otherworldly. Like, <laughs> like, you know, so like, so you, you can either go for the single LP or the entire, entire breadth box. of, yeah. of, um, skin crime. Current, really have to say remorseless greed is something very special mm -hmm. prurient cocaine death Tara was like cocaine death and I was like yeah that's a great representation of a time mm -hmm. right a sp very specific era I thought that was great death pile GR can't even one that, again, I think that represents such an era and I have very f good memories of. Cult of Yellow Tears box set. With oh, the yes! soiled rag. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. I, oh, I just have, dude. it just, it makes me, it makes me think of those guys and that time. So many fun times. And then you just start thinking. You're like, well... There's got to be a Lasuria on there. There's got to be a Rogue State on there. Albrick. So you, it just starts getting really, there's so much to really get, I'm sure. So it's a tough question to say this is the one. But I think these encapsulate certain eras of hospital. Hey, History of AIDS incredibly important was really impactful at the time. Of course, split release with Armageddon. Yeah. That certainly is to this day, one of the most important. So there's so many, it's a hard question to really get down one. It's rough. What about you, Gray? There's a couple that come to mind almost immediately. Uh, TEF Prurient Richard Ramirez Magnified Healing oh, CD. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Uh, an absolute classic from 2001. Uh, I This may have been one of the first titles I ever distributed. I bought a bunch of copies off hospital and, and carried it in my mail order because I loved it so much. And still, it holds up. It's such a great one. I, I, obviously, the skin crime. Uh a really big early comp that came out for me like just at the right time was Field Tales. Oh uh, shoot, man! Oh, you know what? <laughs> I can't believe that's not that. You know uh, what I mean? I am Field Tales. I mean, Field come Tales on, yeah, yeah, right? That was with us. That was insane. On our that's the thing is, this forever. was actually probably the hardest question. So of all. hard, I can't choose. Already the hardest question. Yeah, yeah. I know that I'm gonna remember a hundred things after this too. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, recently, at Pale Newspaper. I mean, we talked about it, you yeah, know, in, in the so year good. end, but just one of my favorites. Uh, Alberic Machine Gun Nest, the the kind of oh, collected yeah. cassettes, like the the best oh, of yeah. the best of Alberic. That I could listen to that all damn day, and I, I got to see him live. God, it's got to be like five, six something years ago now. A few times, and he was playing stuff from sort of that. You know th- those pieces, and it was so damn good live, and just so so powerful. So uh, that's a that's a really big one for me. Lasuria says standstill is like standstill f- is just phenomenal and perfection. But there's there's a lot of cool sort of weird weird one off ones that are yeah. like Aaron Dilloway uh, foxhole level view. I think is what it's called. <laughs> like stuff like that. There's so many strange ones like. Uh, the it, I have to go through and look at like the cassettes and all the weird stuff because there's yeah. just there's just a lot of you know years of of having that stuff and but I do think the new the especially the new packaging and the limited packaging the special edition packaging is absolutely reached a new level of complete vision and it's unbridled and. and, and manifesting that vision mm-hmm. and i think that's really what's so exciting currently so i could easily just picked a bunch of stuff that came out this year it's a new level that really is unseen and it's constantly exciting constantly inspiring in fact someone asked what's the about crazy tape packaging Hey, just close your eyes. Come on over here and point at one of these hospital tape packages from the past two years, and yeah. you could add, that could be your answer. Yeah, I mean, for favorite tape packaging, I know we've shown off a couple of our our favorites and things we've done before on the uh, video explorations on our Patreon. You know, like Fracture of Silence, we compared our copies, and same thing with the uh, uh, Smell and Quim sods as good as a wank. Like showing off some of that stuff, some slaughter tapes. Mm-hmm. Do I have an absolute favorite cassette packaging? I don't know. I, I it, it would be. That's a tough question because it would be a lot of going through. There's a, there's just boxes of uh, awesome tapes here, and it I mean would, the Mercedes. <laughs> not that we have it. <laughs> I would say that's got to be so up there. Hard to choose. That's got to be up yeah. there. One of the greatest. Oh my god! Packages of all time. Wonderful tape <laughs> for sure. So yeah, that's a that's a tough one. There's just a lot of lot of great looking stuff from total DIY confusion to like meticulously manufactured foil embossed this that the other that uh, I just don't know don't know what I would I say. I can't choose. That's I mean that's kind of the whole point. Like you know, part of this podcast is is us going into our favorite tape packaging. So it's it's going to be a journey that will take us years to answer this question. But yeah. I'll say that. Special packaging. Still into it. Love it. Forever love it. And yep. it's... It's noise. What makes noise, noise. Yeah. 100%. 100%. All right. Now, talking about the favorite hospital releases did make me think about this next question. Craziest noise show. Because, you know, for me... it's <laughs> Yeah, you... you it, it, it was impactful (laughs) okay yes i mean those early prurient shows were 
just wild. Like the intensity, the commitment, the occasional blood, uh, well, the, you the getting time knocked that I over. was thrown across yeah, the room. That's what I was, that's, that was what I was uh, yeah, it's, it's quite referencing impactful. when I said impactful. So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, truly I, I think of that and really experiencing, you know, loudness. Like you think, you think, you know, loud and you think, you know, high frequencies. And then, you know, standing at one of those shows was just, just ear splitting and, and stressful and wonderful at the same time. So absolutely early prurient. And then when Mike was, you know, on, on some electronics with death pile for GR in the basement at no fun. I mean, that was one of my absolute favorite. I mean, Clearly, I have. Um, I, I am. I am not impartial in this situation, but all I remember is just being coated in sweat and people climbing all over like the chair and hanging from the pipes to the point that the venue thought that we were going to break the ceiling out of the basement, and uh, just the you know frenetic energy that was so violent and fun. Uh, I just can't. I love that set. No Fun Fest was a, a level that I haven't really seen matched in a lot of shows since then. The the great pool of people from all over the country and other countries getting together mm-hmm. and celebrating noise for two or three days, just blasting in a venue, hanging out outside, hanging out together all the time with people you didn't get to see. And the sheer excitement over something like Death Pile or Bloody Minded or mm. like for me, uh, and this is like. You know, when people talk about seven Hertz gigs, Damien Romero at No Fun Fest is like one of those <laughs> physically affecting, sucked all the air out of the room and just zapped me kind of performances, uh, getting to see in caps, stuff like that. But also, you know, I know we talked about uh, Kevin Drum New Year's Eve where you Ugh. the sound was so yeah. brutal. You could it was a, it took effort to walk into the room. You were being pushed out of the space trying and to get cute. into that room like <laughs> that, you know. There's been plenty of crazy stuff I've seen happen in noise shows. I've hosted crazy shows where everything got broken and stuff got lit on fire and holes got kicked in walls and this and that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I puked in your house too. That's almost certainly true. Just from <laughs> just from strobe lights, fog machine, and intense noise. <laughs> but the when I think of craziest, I think of like the excitement of something like macronympha or pain jerk at no fun fest those were the really for me just absolutely magical times in terms of the excitement and enthusiasm in the room it was just it was palpable mm-hmm. i would say that like you're saying gray i don't know if the, the the question was craziest i don't know if quote unquote crazy but the feeling that i'll never forget would be White House at North Six, and that was having seen them a number of times. That will be forever the set I will always remember. And in fact, it, Tara, while she wasn't there, she was at least able to hear the performance of Cut Hands Has the Solution because I called her and held yep. up the phone the entire song. Yep. So she heard there was a great call to get and so that for me yeah and then i would have to say the two recent times seeing mersbaugh was those were great the one i saw was great yeah yeah unmatched and something i'll never forget Mm -hmm. linecraft 
both, just the both energy times you got of to see that. Minecraft. God, Minecraft is just jaw dropping. That was it was absolutely phenomenal. Those are some, but of yeah, the, we got to see Mersbow. How cool is that? Multiple times, and I think these recent ones were next level. So truly something I will never forget and that will always live with me. Sometimes the quote-unquote crazy shows, they become a blur in a way. And the thing I remember is less the show and more trashing Gray's place. Yeah, I, I played a show where someone legitimately lost an eye. But it's I don't consider that the craziest show I've, I've been to or played, you know? So... Yeah, the, can we follow up on that or no? Sure. I don't know this. I don't know this eyeball. Oh, well, loss. it wasn't during I my was set. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm I, like somebody almost <clears throat> did with your bottle rockets in your apartment. No, I got to play with one of my favorite local bands in LA when I moved here, Francis Harold and the Holograms. Uh, they were really nasty rock band, and uh, I got to play their final show as Hive Mind opening, and then. I performed in the band for a couple songs and uh, yeah, the, there was a chain swinging around and someone uh, lost an eye and, and had to have their eye removed oh. after the show. Wow. Like, ambulance out, all that. Yeah. Ooh. Yowza. Yeah. That's a crazy show. At Los Globos. Oh, here in LA. That place is so brutal. <laughs> oh man, that place is brutal. Oh my god, the first time we went that to see Los Globos, uh, I was just standing in line to use the restroom and there was a fight just just for fun. Just, you know. Just for why fun. Not? Just want to throw that down. Place is yes, brutal. I do. Let's go. Good times. We're on to the gear questions now. Favorite contact mic techniques. Uh I use clamps. That's that is like a big thing for me. If I want my contact mic, I don't Always trust tape. Tape will work if it's a flat surface you need to tape something to. Uh, I use blue tack for a lot of things to hold things in place. And mm -hmm. I use clamps. I keep uh, the, the like Halve main style contact mics. I've been doing some gear demos, some pedal demos and shootouts over on the Patreon for the uh, Trashware video series. And I've been using these and, and these little contact mics. I just like them because I can, there's very very tactile they're very responsive uh you can just sort of shake it around in your hand or touch it and you get good sound out of it when run into a nice pedal so for something simple like that i i just you know just a raw contact mic raw piezo but uh, i have all sorts of spring clamps and vice grips and stuff like that and those can work really great for affixing your contact mic to something um also trying different placements, just always, you know, I, I, when I'm recording like the oil barrel or something, sometimes I'll put four or five contact mics on it and record all of them and see which one gets the sound I want or mix them together because they've all got different characteristics. I don't know. Connelly's, you got some favorite contact mic techniques? I just think of what sound is horrible and hurts your ears. And then I do that with a contact mic. <laughs> you have that. So here's one. Uh, <laughs> is it better to know what gear you'll utilize prior to recording or figure it out as you go? Well, I don't that that question actually I didn't understand it because once he, I'm recording I I have yeah, the gear. Yeah, I have the gear. So did that mean? Did, well, I, I guess see, that, this that, is a question that I actually did kind of understand from that okay, way. Okay, okay, maybe I just didn't understand the way it was worded. Well, no, here's the thing. So I've even I think I've sent you uh, some of the audio from these of uh, I did some sort of like 
two hour long, like live streaming sessions where I was just making noise the whole time, you know, under different guises. And for those, I would start out with a small setup and then there's an audience watching, uh, I'll be at a small one on Twitch or whatever. And so I'm, I'm recording the point of this was like recording and exploring and getting some sounds that maybe I wouldn't get. And the pressure of sort of being in a live setting while still being from my home. And then I would kind of say, okay, well, I want to do something new. So I'll grab this out or someone in chat would say, Oh, just in the moment grab of the Sherman, you know, and like, it. okay, yeah, yeah, I'll throw this on here and start messing yeah. with it. And so in that way, it's kind of fun to add equipment to right. it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I usually start out with a setup and test it out first though, and listen to it and kind of know what I'm doing early on. I didn't early on. I, I piled all my pedals into a case and set them up confusedly at shows and it wasn't a very good result, but I'm a little older and just a tiny bit wiser now. And I, I generally have something in mind when I'm going for, you think you learned recording. your lesson this time, but that's not to say that the, the impulse and adding something in can't be really exciting and, and garner really good results. So like, I don't know, you know, maybe you're recording and you realize oh, I need this delay or I got to swap out this distortion for this other one, or I'm going to record that same part again, but with this pedal on gotcha. it or more wah. So yeah. I don't know. Uh, whatever feels natural, whatever you feel like doing, try both, you know, uh, and on trash where I think it was, uh, was it Moreau's who talked about turning the lights off and using your gear? If not apologies to whomever said it, but I think that that like stumble around, get back to the experimentation, try and figure out, add pieces in, uh, hook things up wrong and see what you get. I broke um, the thing I was playing once with Mike, so then I played a bag of corn, unpopped popcorn. It worked out really well. I highly suggest <laughs> unpopped popcorn. Some of the best progressions in my sound or approach have come from uh, something breaking, not being able to use something that I relied on, um, or being in a different situation, losing a pedal on tour, having a fuse blow in my synthesizer while sound checking for a big show, stuff like that, that like couldn't really be rectified easily. And you push on and find new things. So get out of your comfort zone. Uh, and if that means picking different gear up or throwing things in while you're recording, go for it. Uh, I guess this one isn't actually gear. The last couple of these here. Um, any way you guys could play snippets or clips of songs being discussed? I feel like we've we've answered this one a few times, but uh, two different things. I don't want to put a bunch of someone else's music in here without clearing it and asking them. So we put 30 seconds at the beginning of the episode to give you a feel for it, but otherwise you should seek it out. And also, mystery and imagination are, in my opinion, and I'm certain the Connollys, essential to noise and listening to noise and discovering noise. So while we talk about something, we want you to hear it and figure it out for yourself and say, oh, this must have been that thing they were talking about. Or, oh, I think I don't think this sounds like that at all. But those are all wonderful ways to to explore it and, and laying it all out and putting in kinds of samples and stuff is kind of uh, the antithesis of that. It's like reading an old banana fish review of a tape that we couldn't. Get, yeah, it's the best. Didn't have access to, but it was that review was. Mm -hmm enough for us to want to seek it out or it aided and added to 
the entire experience once you did finally get it. Yeah, you imagine what something sounds like and maybe you imagined something that's that works and maybe sometimes it's not like it at all, but it's 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 really great to have that engagement and the process of seeking something out yeah. and looking for it and finding it. It's just it's just so much more satisfying that way. Uh strange question, I guess for me, uh at the end of the rope, how did it come together? That's uh, for those who don't know the 20th release on Contradict Sound, although it did not come out in that order because it took me years to figure out how to make a two CD compilation and get off my ass and do it. And that was when you could email people and ask them for a track. And there was a noise forum that a lot of people communicated on. And I just asked a lot of artists who I liked to contribute tracks and everybody did pretty much. Um, it's a pretty good portrait of sort of what I was listening to at the time and who I was in contact with and the things that I really liked. So that's, uh, it's, it was really simple. It's just, a an idea to do a compilation with a theme, with a focus to give people an impetus to create something specific and then sectioning the pieces off into sort of two, the two different sides as the, the pieces came in and, uh, yeah, just, uh, a, a lot of lessons learned making that compilation and uh really thankful that I did it and, and that I still have copies of it. Like I, it's kind of insane, but like I said, when I, <laughs> I still have copies of stuff I've done, I don't know how many years ago. Yeah, that's one. So nothing too exciting there. Sorry. No big reveal is I like emailed people and <laughs> sent some letters and asked people to do stuff. Uh, all right. This I love this question, and I have no idea what the answer is, so I'm going to ask the Connollys. Any albums or artists the three of us have radically different opinions on? Was there something <laughs> that you that you thought of? Because I was like racking my brain trying to figure this one out. It's a great oh, question. A hundred percent. So many. But the I think the reality is that that would mean we would break our rule of staying relatively positive without critique so you don't want to say well we like this and gray hates this or gray mm -hmm. likes this and we hate it or whatever there is absolutely a set of albums i specifically am thinking of that you had a radically different opinion on that you have changed and i was i was going to leave that up to you but I know I know what I'm thinking of. Oh, well, you're talking about all the White House records after quality time because I used to be really <laughs> stubborn uh, with that. I, I this has been this is like a friendship long uh, debate that it had I've had years later come around on all those records and lots uh, of screaming well, over this I, one. I, I for would fun. I would say it's less of a debate and that one side was correct and that the other side <laughs> finally understood the correct response. Look, if it helps you sleep at night to be right. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> but yeah, certainly I would assume there's definitely stuff, but yeah, that would just. That's not what we do here. That's not what we do. Yeah, if we have to, we, we have these conversations. Privately. Unrecorded. Yeah. Sometimes mm -hmm. they're recorded. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Are you doing your rogue state homework and can I cheat off of you? You absolutely cannot cheat. We will be, You only cheat yourself when you cheat on your rogue state homework. We will be contacting Dean Frost if you are caught cheating. You'll pick up the red phone. 
Send and a grenade your way. We will then be contacting your local service offices to let them know you are available for draft since you will be then expelled from college. Zero point zero. Was there something that surprised you about an album or guest that you weren't expecting? Mm-hmm. I feel every guest we have, there's some new revelation and exciting surprise that we didn't know. This this was when we were trying to really think of because I feel that it's almost every interview we do, we ended up finding something that we didn't know. We referenced Dominic's interview, I think, Again, for three people who have known him for so long, there was so much stuff yeah. that we didn't know. The thought of sleeping on a bench in Lowell with the oversized leather jacket. With the jacket. oversized leather jacket is great. And then we were talking about like Walklet. Just the thought of Dave the Walklet making, making bread. bread. Yes. Yeah. The, yeah. the making bread. <laughs> like that's phenomenal. That was amazing. I can't believe we got to talk to Seymour Glass. Just getting Just to everything. hear about the old banana fish there was so much great stuff from it was there such a massive part of our life for us it's just the great interviews we've gotten to do and more that we're gonna get to do interviewing Sh- charlotte sartre was oh my that god that whole interview Phenomenal. was great and stuff we didn't know and constant we were just like wow this is so great just like hearing her perspective and and her insights on just to many different things it was it was it was wonderful it was i you know, I feel so lucky for that. And so it's a, it's a constant like Joe Colley. Yeah. Like I, I really just, just genuinely enjoyed hearing his thought process and hearing his responses and the way he approaches his, his art, his life, his thoughts, his interactions. Like it, it was just so refreshing and and wonderful and so individualistic. Well, and I think just getting to do any of these interviews, so many of these people we maybe met at a show and and talked a little bit mm-hmm. before and after the show. Maybe you we grabbed a bite with them or something, but rarely do you sit down for an hour, 2 hours whatever and have a really focused conversation. And I was so nervous for GX because that was one of the first ones while I was there. It was like early on. And so I was still really nervous to say anything. And then for it to be. I GX, loved when you brought up the math stuff, though. That Jupiter was great. Larson, in the wind, I was, in the wind, I, like, my dirt, hands the wind, were shaking. I was episode. so nervous. <laughs> Everything GX yes. said was incredible and exciting. I'm still so, thinking about him. Still thinking about the poly wave right now. Yeah. So <laughs> it's it's. Every Dude, time Chris Yanko's to- amount of research and the things that he oh. that the, ta- he the taste about? test the taste oh test taste test was really amazing. There yeah. you go. Uh, the taste test tapes that his, was something we didn't know about. His brilliant devotion that was something we is didn't know so about. Good. Uh, while we're talking about GX, he has a new variety show on YouTube called The Five Minute Hour that everyone should check out, and I will add a oh, link here. I just watched God. the new episode last night. Awesome! Hell yeah, that's great. And I think for this episode, since the questions came via all listeners that we won't do an extra Patreon segment for this one, just because it would be, we want everyone to get to hear their question who asked. So I think for this episode, Mm -hmm. 
we will have the full episode available for everyone since the content came from everyone. And again, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. For so that. much. You really yeah. helped us out and got us thinking about so many different things. And we have so many killer interviews lining up right now that I am uh, truly excited to get surprised by new things, more, more things uh, coming our way, more strange answers and unusual viewpoints and uh, historical facts that we did not know about the wonderful world of noise. And all of its branches and tendrils. So excited for another year. And again, thank you so much for these questions. These are great. We enjoy doing this. This is part two of a listener questions episode. Part one was from a year ago. So, hey, maybe part three comes in 2023 or sooner. We'll see because we do enjoy doing this. So thank you so much for all the questions and we'll have to do it again.